Hi, my name is Tim Lee, and you are about to listen to the season one finale of Leader Life. I hope this podcast has been a source of encouragement so far for you, and I hope to get even better at creating helpful, fun, and quality content for you in future seasons. You can keep an eye out for season two in the fall of 2018. In the meantime, one of the most important things that a leader needs to do is take time to have a fun life. So I'm taking my podcasting time this summer and I'm giving it away to my wife and my daughters. But for now, we've got a season finale episode to get to and it is not going to disappoint. There are certain people I want on this podcast just so you can hear them talk for a little while, and Alexander James is absolutely one of those people. Alexander is a spoken word poet, a youth pastor, a husband, and a father. We met at a youth camp where we were both serving, and I immediately became a fan. His perspective on the church and what it should look like to be a follower of Jesus in 2018 is refreshing and inspiring. You're going to hear him share some of that in this episode, including a dive into one of his pieces. Alexander has a wisdom that is easy to listen to. So for the finale episode of season one, I want to invite you to listen closely to the insights of a man who lives in the balance between working in the church and working on it as an insider, a leader, and an artist. I hope you find it as refreshing as I did. We'll jump right into the interview as Alexander is taking some time to introduce himself and share the story of how he became a poet. So enjoy my interview with the honest poet, Alexander James. I am the youth and children's minister at First Missionary Baptist Church in their 10 years. I'm also a spoken word poet, I'm a Christian spoken word poet. So um, my full-time job is traveling the city and if not that, the country and world sharing uh, creative perspective on, on gospel theology, um, just told using literary devices and passion. I've been uh, full-time for about two and a half years now, but I've been a poet for almost 10 years. I um, actually fell into poetry literally on accident. Um, as a senior in high school, um, I was in AP English uh, with Miss Jackson. Shout out, Miss Jackson. Um, she gave him a poetry assignment, and I was the type of student I wouldn't do any of your homework, but I would ace your tests and then laugh. Like, that was me. Um, so she gave out a poetry assignment, and I let her know that, hey, I'm an athlete. I don't do poetry. Um, just give me the essay. Just give me the test, and I'll just pass that. She looked me dead in the eyes and said, I'm not grading any of your work until you write me a poem. Thinking she was bluffing, um, I waited to the mid-semester report card and realized that I had an F in AP English went to the teacher and said, why do I have an F? And she pulls out a drawer that has all my homework that I turned in ungraded because she hadn't received the poem yet. So of course that night I write a poem. Um, she makes me read it in front of class. And I had this um, transformative moment, man, where it was the first time I was given an applause for something that didn't have something to do with being strong or fast or big and tall. Wow. Um, and it was the first time that I was even acknowledged for something that my heart and my mind could produce and not just being faster or stronger than other people, which is, you know, I'm a big guy. So 
since you're five years old, they go, oh, he's going to play football. Oh, he's going to play basketball. And that just kind of gets ingrained in you. Um, but what some people, uh, I would imagine, use as, as encouragement um, can sometimes can become a cage, uh, can, can become a limit to, to who you, what your potential really could be. Um, and from when, when at that moment, when the whole class stands up and applauds this, you know, poem that I wrote in an hour, I was like, this feels different than anything I've ever felt before. And in that moment, I fell in love with the power of words and poetry and how you can shape atmospheres and tell stories and um, how people look at the same thing and look at their whole life, but just look at it differently. Um, uh, a couple of weeks later, I get saved. Um, this minister from this church uh, would come up to the school every Wednesday, and he was the first person. Um, I'm like 17. He's the first person to sit across from me at a desk and tell me the gospel. Um, now, the, the beautiful problem of that is that, you know, my uncles were all deacons. My aunties were all deaconesses. You know, my grandparents were on the trustee board of the church. I was in church every Sunday, three times a week. But I was 17 before someone ever sat me down and looked me in the eyes and said, if you're leading a life of sin and you are not, you have not made the decision to make Christ king, then you are going to go to hell. And he was the first person to tell me a truth in love. Um, and I got saved right there at a desk in my high school. Um, and I had just fallen in love with poetry. And then I had just fallen in love with Jesus. Um, so I said, well, maybe I can kind of mix these two things together. So after a couple of years of kind of not knowing what to do with it, because in your average black church, either you're a preacher or you sing or you play an instrument. That's kind of the three categories there are. So there, were, was, there wasn't really a place for me with this specific gift other than like youth day once a year when they kind of let the kids do whatever they want and they let me read a poem. Um, but I didn't notice that my gift had value until I ran into a ministry called P4CM. It's the Passion for Christ ministry. Every year they do this, the largest Christian spoken word event in the world called Rhetoric. Um, and there I met these poets who were sharing these deep theological gospel truths with passion and wisdom through poetry. Um, and it really emboldened me to kind of chase after it myself. Um, and after like seven years of, uh, what, I guess what, what normal artists would call like the LA circuit, <laughs> I, um, I looked up and realized that my heart at my nine to five was kind of waning. Um, but I was kind of just pushing through it. And my awesome, amazing, beautiful wife uh, hugs me one day, looks me in the eyes and says, I want you to leave your job and do what God told you to do. Um, while she's pregnant, six months pregnant, right? So who, who's about to have their first child and goes, oh, I think I should leave my job. <laughs> uh, but little did I know that what I had put together about two years prior to that as a as a training uh, mechanism for my staff, I was the supervisor at a nonprofit here in LA, was really an exit strategy for myself. And when I went back and looked at it, I was training the staff under me to do what I did the way I did it. And upon completion of that, I was able to write a letter and say, hey, I'm leaving. But the guy under me, I've been training him for two years to take my job, just hire him. So I, I 
pray about it, you know, pray with my wife, hit send. And that morning, I woke up to about 10 booking forms from people that I had never met before who had just heard about me, who had heard about my character. Um, and I, was, I, I strongly believe that was God's way of really encouraging me that I had made the right decision. And how here I am two years later uh, with a son and another child on the way. Um, and I'm a big guy. We have not missed a meal. God has been incredibly faithful uh, to me and my family. That's kind of uh, who I am and kind of where I'm at. Man, your story is so powerful. There, there's so many layers. By the way, before I get into some other questions that I've got, and I've got a bunch, but um, congratulations, another baby on the way. That is exciting news. Now, I know that on your website, you say that you are engaged in uh, mentorship for other younger poets. Um, yeah. So that's something that obviously you now have a passion to be able to spot and help develop other younger poets. Do you think that Mrs. Jackson maybe saw something in you in those days that that's why she made po the writing of the poem? Like that's the hill she chose to die on for you to get a grade. Like what did she see in you? You know, Matt, um, me and Ms. Jackson had a great relationship after that moment. Um, when I decided to, um, invest in my heart and my mind and not just my arms and my legs. Um, she was really the catalyst for that. You know, she was a um, kind of older African-American teacher from Chicago. Um, and she kind of picked me out and just said, you have more potential than what I think you notice. And we would have long talks after this class, before class. And she became a real encouragement for me, man. I, I, I can't... She never answered the question about why, like why me. She was always very intentional to never, you know, give me a clear answer on that. But I can say that she, she's one of those teachers, man, that you wish you heard about more often. I believe they exist, but they just don't make headlines because they're building people. I like that. When you said she was intentional about not telling you why she picked you out. Yeah. Um, does that play into the way that you mentor other young artists now? It does, man. So I, the, what you're referring to is what I, I put together a curriculum called Honest Poets. Um, and I believe the world can use more honest poets. The crux of it, I believe, is testimony ownership, right? I believe there's uh, an arsenal of strength and encouragement and power and, dare I even say, weapons that is at the, the disposal of the Christian if they are truly able to own their testimony, not only do you disarm the enemy from being able to throw it back at you, but you arm yourself from being able to say, yeah, I went there and I did that and I was with him and I was with her and God still chose and God still blessed and God still rescued. I think the gospel is only as beautiful as your sin is ugly. And I think for, for the artist. Um, I don't think it's fair for you to want someone to listen to your story. And if you haven't taken a long look at it yourself, um, I encourage all of my artists to take very slow walks down memory lane, take your Bible with you so you don't park, but you should be very aware of where you came from. And, um, I don't know if it's in most churches, but in the black church, there's a song we sing that says, where would I be if the Lord wasn't on my side? Um, and I love that song, um, but it, in my program, I ask my artists to ask themselves, not so much where, but who. Who would you have been 
if God didn't save you? Um, and why would you have been that person? And what were the, the factors that were creating that person? What fears were shaping that person? And let's speak from that honest, really rough place. Um, and I believe that's where real good art uh, comes from, not just the, the shock value art of like, the church is a business now and all preachers are just in it for the money. You know, like the very surfacey um, emotional response stuff. I, I'd, I'd rather make people, um, I'd rather make people think than make people feel. And I want my artists to try to do the same. I hope you're enjoying this interview so far with youth pastor, father, poet, and mentor, Alexander James. I'm interrupting right now because we're about to take a turn in our conversation, and it's going to be best if you have some context. I asked Alexander to talk about a specific poem of his that I was really interested in. It's actually one of my favorite pieces of his work that I've heard so far. The best way for you to appreciate the rest of our conversation is going to be for you to hear it for yourself first. So thanks to Alexander and the good people of the Rhetoric Conference, take the next several minutes to listen to a powerful spoken word delivered by Alexander James at Rhetoric 2016 called Upside Down. When was the last time that baptismal pools washed off your fingerprints because you, you were one of the last ones to touch them? When was the last time that your tongue turned red carpet and Jesus was made visible in your syllables? When was the last time your church dripped wet with rejuvenation? When was the last time the janitor had to mop up somebody's old life? Like, when was the last time y'all had to wash towels? Because so many people have finally thrown in the towel in the battle with God. I guess what I'm asking you for is, when was the last time you baptized somebody? Well, I guess... I guess a better question is, church, are we even still in the saving business or just the changing business, the social justice, political rearranging business, just the singing business? Because either way, business is dooming. I've come to remind you that baptismal pools are hungry graveyards the Davy Jones locker of the gospel, and I've seen it. Souls so thirsty for his presence, go skinny dipping in his forgiveness, drinking in his glory till they hiccup. Hallelujahs, I've been there. When souls take their first steps in faith, walk becomes a run toward repentance till they get to the edge of the baptismal pool and cannonball with conviction that Jesus is Lord. Church, I have a fear. My fear is that once a year, we meet here and lounge around lyricists, listening to rhetoric. But church, what are we doing? How much time are we wasting? Church, concerts, fundraisers, annual days, concerts, fundraisers, annual days. And if God, 
if he was to crush our concerts, eradicate our events, bulldoze our buildings, and like a bully, grab the church by the ankles and turn us upside down and shake what will come out. Just pocket lint, littered with love that we never let loose. We, like lazy cupids, ending the day with a quiver, still full of arrows because we were unwilling to pierce someone with love. Now, some of us will say that I've been running for Jesus a long time, and that's okay. <laughs> but if the real mission is to see them saved, how many of us have been running from Jesus alone? time, I've always been amazed with how little Jesus in the Bible actually spent at church. Possibly because he was always at work. You see, the signs of belief used to be a heart that burns with the desire to see the king to take feet from boat and walk overseas with eyes locked on he. He who massages Mother Nature's mood swings. He who makes saved synonymous with changed. I dare you to ask Peter. The furious fighting fisherman, he had fished all night and his net didn't work, but when Christ joined his network, it made his network caught so many fish. He had fished all night and his net didn't work. But when Christ joined his network, it made his network. Got so many fish, he needed some more net workers. Because when Christ joins your network, it raises your net worth. So church, church, why doesn't your network? Church, why doesn't your network? We're becoming... We're becoming a church of smooth knees. People too scared to pray when it's rocky and therefore, we keep the cross close like a prop. But we've forgotten what it's there for. His hands took hammers just to smith our wills so we could gain our independence day. And even though the Jews lied, he came forth. And now we praise him like fireworks at war with the darkness. We, we have to remind ourselves that he literally unwrapped himself so we can give the lost his present, a future with him. We have to remind ourselves that the gospel is the first ultrasound because when you use it, you can literally see life. We often sing songs like, fill me up. Till I overflow, I want to run over, fill me up. But church, what good is it if we're all full but capped down by tradition and comfortability? Our silence, our silence makes Flint, Michigan's of them because we have the water and all they have is poison. We must remind ourselves that gospel is bow and arrow. It takes aiming and pressing and loading and pressure and piercing. And I'm not saying that at the end of this poem, you're not a real Christian unless you go on some mission trip to Fiji or Arizona. No, I'm just saying be water. 
to your close friends and your homies around the corner. Church, we are walking, talking Paulian epistles. Proud, prisoners of purpose, publicly casting testimonies like seeds in a garden of guilt, watering them with lifestyles lived on hilltops. And I get it. It's hard getting the convocation to the cross. But let me remind you, it was hard getting Christ to the cross. It took a whole lot of love and a whole lot of blood. So why should it be easy for you? This gospel is not a catapult to launch you to your destiny. It is an ecosystem that we must live in. If you, if you have never Roman walked someone to the cross, there is a joy that you have not experienced yet. This Christian life lived at its fullest, it's like it's like being the Grinch at the end of the story where your heart goes two times the size. You want to do whatever it takes to take his presence back to who will ever listen. So God, turn us upside down. Pour us out on this dry and weary world that is tired, scratching the dirt, bleeding, looking for a buried treasure that was risen from the grave over 2,000 years ago. Remind us that the gospel turns tombs into wombs because we were born again. Speaking of wombs, my wife, my wife Victoria is pregnant with our first child, my son, and church, if something was to happen to me and my wife, I pray, I pray that you would not just teach him how to shout. I pray that you would not just teach him how to recite scripture, how to be a junior deacon, how to be in the choir. I pray that you would not turn him into just another empty Christian. But if you love him, and you love us, then you will look him in his face. You will tell him, tell him that if he does not surrender to God, then he is his enemy. Tell him that the wages of sin are still death and God does not miss a payday. Tell him that Jesus was sent as a mediator to save our wretched souls. Tell him that he must confess, that he must believe, that he must repent. Tell him the gospel. Because this world will never be right side up until the church is more willing to be upside down. This was delivered before your first son was born. Uh, so you made a reference to that on that date. That's kind of where you were in your season of life. Um, but you also like really express your heart and your feelings about, about the church. And you were just saying a few minutes ago, uh, some of your thoughts about the church and how that impacts your poetry. So as I've been listening to you for a bit and kind of watching your story for a bit since we met, 
the question that keeps coming up into my mind is is around this word critique uh, because I don't hear you giving criticism, which yeah. I think there's a subtle difference uh, between criticism and critique. Um, but so what is what does that word critique mean to you and how it comes out in in your art? I believe that anything you love, you can critique lovingly. There are a lot of artists who've almost made a business out of just bashing the church, mm. um, just saying all the church is going wrong. And because there are so many folk in a particular age group who believe that, who, who agree, and they're just happy somebody's saying it, they, you know, they get excited and that's, that's kind of their bread and butter. However, it took me a while to grow to the place where I acknowledge that every critique I have of the church is a stain on my own shirt. And it's not me noticing broccoli in someone else's teeth. And I think that's a subtle perspective switch that a lot of folks need to make, that it's not about just about getting the moat out of your brother's eye while there's a two by four in yours, right? So I love that that example that Christ gives because a lot of folks stop on the, you know, only God can judge me and don't put a finger at somebody else if you're doing something. And that is true. Um, however, um, he never said not to try to get the moat out of your brother's eye. Like he doesn't discourage the process. He just brought up what would hinder the process if you have something in your own eye. And I even love the, just the reality of the metaphor he uses. Like in reality, Tim, if I was to get something out of your eye, I have to get relatively close to you to get it out of your eye. And if there's a two by four in my eye and I have to get close to your eye, what am I going to do? I'm going to hit you in the head with my own two by four. <laughs> I'm trying to get a speck out of yours. And I think a lot of that happens in church where folks will maybe genuinely try to go help someone, but they'll end up doing more harm than good because they haven't wrestled enough with themselves. So for me, it's twofold. One, I acknowledge that all my critiques, I'm talking to my brother and my sister. And for some folks, that will have you take the inhibitions off of what you say because it's family and you should be able to be safe. But I don't think uh, Christ would have us not be wise and not be loving when we're speaking to family. And then the other side of it, which I think is a little heavier, is that I'm talking to the bride of Christ. And just anybody's not going to talk about my wife, Tim. Let me just, you know, I, I'm going to do my best to, you know, <laughs> respond in the most Christian way that I can. But I'm going to talk about the wrestle in my heart. Just anybody's not going to insult my wife um, mm. and think we're cool. Um, and I think that when I started falling and seeing the, the bride, the way Christ saw the bride, um, when I started acknowledging that I may have worked two, three months to save money for my wife's ring, but he's been waiting since the beginning of eternity to offer mm -hmm. himself to the bride. And if he can value her to that degree, then there's something he sees that I don't see. And I want to fight to see what Christ saw in the bride um, that made her worthy. Um, and so when I'm coming from that place, it's really um, my critiques are help, are. are helping the bride get dressed before she goes out to the wedding. You know, that, that, that's the, the heart and the intimacy that I want the, my opinions and some of the things that I've seen in the church to come from. Um, you're not going to let the bride go out with an ink stain on her dress. Not because, you know, oh, you look so dirty. It's like, no, the man that's waiting for you at the altar deserves for you to look as beautiful as possible. Um, so let's take the time. Let's, let's, you know, put everything on the way it should be um, 
not because of what other people will say about the dress, but because how we value the opinion of the groomsmen. I'd love it to just ask you a couple of questions about some of the spots in that poem. Let's do it. I mean, right at the beginning, you say business is dooming. I mean, those three words right there are fire. Yeah, yeah man. So the, the poem kind of opens up with this idea that um, I'm asking I'm asking the church to uh, question why it's in business. Because if it's not about souls, then you're dooming people. If if if, if the main reason that you are opening your doors is not to save a lost sheep, then we are becoming a a cruise ship going the wrong way. Mm. We're with best entertainment and it's relaxing and great, but nobody's getting saved. Like the difference between a lifeboat and a cruise ship, you got to pick one. Uh, one's definitely more comfortable, but one saves and one doesn't. And this idea of almost lulling people into this sense of safety when Christ is like calling us to to almost be completely devoted to the salvation of others and not in a, just entertaining ourselves. I think the church has gotten really great at finding really awesome ways to entertain itself. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll stop there. <laughs> it's, it seems like you have a lot more to say uh, about that, but I, I do appreciate you uh, just being able to pour out your heart the way that you do already. So, I mean, feel free. You don't have to stop there. <laughs> I just, I, I say that to say that I think that um, the gospel doesn't need special effects. And I think that there's a standard that we've kind of accepted from the world where if it doesn't have lights and a video screen and fog machines and ripped jeans and a viral video, um, then it's not a good church. So that's why the beginning of the poem, I talk about this idea that, you know, when was the last time your church had to pay the water bill? Because the water bill was really high because you guys have to keep baptizing people. And let this idea that maybe our focus is, is shifted from the baptismal pool to the stage. Way more transformation happens in the baptismal pool than will ever happen on a stage with lights and fog. Um, and I think we need to put our focus back and, and getting folks baptized into the faith um, and not giving folks an opportunity to have an emotional experience. I love it. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that you talk about in the, in the kind of the first third of the poem is this imagery of if God, like a bully came and flipped the church upside down, shook us by our ankles, what would fall out? And you, you go on to kind of describe like, man, it's just pocket lint of, and love that we never gave away and the imagery in there is so beautiful. And I, I actually love even how the very last statement of your poem is kind of a callback to that. When you then said, uh, I mean, and your last phrase is because the world will never be right side up until the church is more willing to be upside down. I mean, just, just artistically, I love the idea that in the first part of your poem, you're talking about, man, God, if he came like a bully and flipped us upside down, what would he find? But then the end is this call, this like admonition, almost imploring us, like, please just be willing to be upside down. I, I love that. I, I absolutely love that. Where does, and you're thinking, where does that, that, that idea of the church needing to live upside down come from for you? And what does that, what does that mean? Yeah, man, the simplest form of it would be uh, like a water bottle. If I water a plant 
or you know pour it pour it out the water or something i have to take the bottom i have to unscrew it right take the things that are strapped down and unscrew that and then take its contents turn the bottle upside down to pour it out on something else so something else can live better and more full and absence of what it was what it was needing because someone else was willing to to pour themselves out right and i think the idea of upside down is kind of this this very anti comfort sermon um you know anti comfort church i think that we as a body to ask ourselves if we are just padding our pulpits instead of building people um if it, are are we making decisions on a regular basis to be more uncomfortable in the poem i bring up that getting the conversation to jesus at with your coworkers with your families with your friends with your aunties your cousins is not easy it's, it it feels awkward it's not a a normal regular thing that just happens but getting jesus to the cross wasn't easy either this man was was picked up in a garden and, and beaten all night back torn to shreds beat so bad he didn't look like a human anymore and we think that we should only use clever tricks to get the conversation to jesus when he literally bled to get to the cross so i think that there are are our fears of um public opinion our fears of how we'll be seen by family members and coworkers by by just letting them know the gospel uh, i think we need to kind of die to ourselves in that sense and escape that comfort of being liked and being uh accepted if i value more being accepted by people that have been accepted the gospel that i am promoting my comfort over their salvation when i talk about the idea of being upside down it's it's intentionally disadvantaging yourself to advantage someone else i i think of uh the good samaritan right you know the levite walked by and the priest walked by because they couldn't be encumbered they couldn't be slowed down you know in today's vernacular i'm on my way to service so i can't stop for you i'm on my way to go do a church thing so i can't stop for you you know the even in the levitical tribe you know his rules and regulations wouldn't let him touch a dying man right but the man wasn't dead yet but he looked dead enough so it's like oh he's going to be dead so i'll just you hide behind my rules and bylaws and regulations to not do what simply the right thing is um and the samaritan who's the outcast um in that time who's the person who's looked down on the most um is that the folks who you know are low don't have to look far to get someone to get someone else up who's low um and he heals this man and what i love about the story is a little nuances of just how beautiful the bible's written man i love how it says he was riding a dog everybody else was walking the samaritan man was riding a donkey um and i love that when he heals the man bandages him up he puts the man on his donkey and then he walks and i love the subtlety in that the idea that i'm going to intentionally make what i was doing more difficult cuz i have to physically walk instead of ride my donkey to advantage you who are wounded and been robbed i'm going to intentionally pour out one of my comforts so that you can know how much god loves you so you can have you know feel his grace and his love through uh me but also acknowledging that this is disadvantaging me and being okay with that. You hear a lot about 
to reign with me, you must suffer with me. I think we chew on that scripture a lot. I just don't know if a lot of us have swallowed it. But what I'm calling for in this idea of living upside down is devoting yourself to other salvation simply by being willing to disadvantage yourself, time, energy, money, talent, to advantage someone else, not just for applause or for uh, credence, but to drive them toward the gospel so they can see a living embodiment of what a life looks like filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. You made a conscious decision to reference Flint, Michigan in in the middle of that poem. I think the longer we get away from the beginning of our awareness of what happened or what's still happening in Flint, Michigan, the more poignant that point feels. They still don't have clean water. And like culturally, here we are kind of moving, like we've moved on. It's as if it's not a big deal. People are actually still struggling. Um, actually, I was talking to a pastor who serves near Flint and his church started, they have some friends who are, who are in Flint, Michigan, and they're doing ministry there. And so they were serving with water bottles. They were bringing water bottles in when everything kind of happened. Wow. And, you know, he actually was asking his friends out there who are, who are pastoring in the community. He said, what do you, what do you guys need now? And they said, now we actually need to figure out how to dispose of all of the plastic it's uh from from all the water that's come in from all over the nation from people who you know lovingly sent them water and that's great but now you know the water's not coming in as fast so we need to figure that out but now we've got this whole other problem uh that we have all these plastic bottles so we don't know what we're going to do with now i was just struck by the fact that culturally culturally we've totally moved on from flint like we're not talking about it anymore and yeah. then it seems like some of the things that we thought were going to be a help have actually created more problems for these people. And we're not even talking about it. Yeah, man. How'd you decide to make that reference in the middle of that poem? I'm a very thematic writer um, in the sense that if I have an overarching theme in my writing, I try to make sure that m- most of the things in the poem, um, if not all, touch back on this this singular theme. So the, the, the poem is centered on this idea of water and drinking. So while I'm writing, I wanted to make reference. Um, I, I talk about, you know, Arizona, which is a drink, and then Fiji, which is a drink. Right? So I wanted to make everything kind of center around this idea of how many examples that are uh, accurate, that are poignant, but also can make the point that I wanted. So when I was just thinking, like, if I'm drinking... This living well, this fountain that got, that the Holy Spirit and the Word of God puts in me to refresh me. I, and I asked myself once, I said, um, how did I solve my problems before I got saved? And I just kind of sat and I said, what did I, I? It took me so long to like go, but before Jesus, it's not like I didn't have problems. Like, but what did I do? You just drink lies. You know, you just, you, you, you tell yourself it's okay. You you uh, you mask it with something. You drown it by something else. You you feed your flesh in some other arena to try to avoid it. Um, and for some reason, in my mind, that kind of said, "Wow, like it's like we are we have clean water, and they're drinking poison." And from that, uh, the best way to share that kind of idea um, was also and also lift kind of awareness 
uh, to what's going on in Flint was to use those two metaphors together um, to say that, hey, like, um, we have clean water and they're drinking poison and and kind of flip it and use it as, you know, we have the gospel and the word of God and Holy Spirit helping us and feeding us daily. And we're standing around people who we know for a fact are drinking poison because if you have not Christ, you have not life. Um, and how can we be okay with that? The same national moral outrage that we saw all over CNN about Flint, Michigan. Um, I'm calling for there to be some type of burden, some type of hurt, some type of almost um, righteous indignation for the same thing when it comes to the gospel and the unsaved. Um, they don't have water and mm -hmm. we're okay with that. Man. You said something at the beginning of our conversation. I wonder how much it plays into the way you write things like that and, and the way that you talk about the church. You said earlier when you were just telling your story, you waited, essentially. I mean, you kind of were made to wait until you were 17, until somebody sat down with you and told you the gospel. But then you, I mean, the next thing you said immediately, but the problem with that was that you had church leaders in your family. How much of that is in your adult life now and in your ministry and in your leadership playing into, I don't want somebody else to have to wait until they're 17, like I did when I'm surrounded by Christians. I am among the generation who watch their parents church and church and church and church and church, like in church, but not change. We watched them church. Every time the church doors were open, they were there. And Bible study, they were there. Choir rehearsal, they were there. And come home and still be mean uh, and gossip about church members we just sang with on the way home from church. So the church, we're the, we're the kids of those kids who watch that. So there is this almost mental callousness that is growing over the church, right, where it's not a place where actual processing happens. It's not a place where actual transforming happens. It's a place you go and do stuff. And then after you do the stuff, you go back home. And for some reason, you call that stuff worship. Hmm. For me, man, just growing up and seeing that, growing up, you know, where the deacon board is all my uncles and, the, you know, the choir is full of my family members and close friends. And I've spoken to most of them so I can say this in honesty and in love, but not seeing it affect their personal life, not seeing evidence of what we sang about, evidence of what we preached about, actually change how they treated me during the week. Hmm. And backed me up for the longest. And I learned Christian needs, right? You learn, God bless you, brother. Mm -hmm. yeah. How you doing, sister? Blessed and highly favored. Thank you so much. You learn, and it almost becomes, you ever play um, like Sonic the Hedgehog on Sega? Yeah, man. That means we're friends. <laughs> so the, the underwater levels were always the most hated levels, right? Because you have to, the music gets all scary until you get to an air bubble. Yep. Right? You have to find an air bubble and then find I can keep going. Learning how to pretend to be Christian became an air bubble in that world for me. And I just used it to get by and to get through wow. because I didn't know what everybody was really doing. Church seems so fake and so empty. Um, I, I kind of explained the, the, the comparison I made earlier 
Um, when I was younger, man, I used to love infomercials. Don't know why. Uh, maybe the language, like this idea of, of speaking in a persuasive way um, to try to get people to, to invest in this thing that you want them to have. You have to let them know that you need this. Maybe it sounded like preaching almost <laughs> in a lot of ways. My favorite infomercials were always the workout machines, though, you know, like the Ab Master 7000, you know. And um, I like those because they just had better evidence of their machine. And mm-hmm. that was it before and after pictures. You know, the before pictures, it was regular Joe Schmo, and the after pictures, they look like WWE wrestlers, right? And my, my fear, man, when it comes to connectivity to the, to the, to the, the reason church exists, to being honest, to our personal testimonies, to sharing that process of what God is doing in your heart with other people so they don't feel lost in their process. I'm, I'm afraid that the church is becoming slowly a, a museum of after pictures when it comes to that machine. The point of the before and after pictures is to prove the effectiveness of the machine, is to say that it's worth the investment, it's worth the time, it's worth the sweat, because I was this, and now I'm this, and I can tell you that story by these two pictures, and I got this machine, and I did what it asked me to do, and now my life is completely changed because mm. I did this thing. And, but if the church is only willing to share the after picture, then how do I? How can I trust the effectiveness of the machine? You won't tell me you're before. So mm. I never see. If I don't have anything to compare it to, if all I know is suits and ties and big hats and hollering. But you won't tell me what you used to do and where you used to go and where you used to come from. Because that's where I'm at. This is your average young adult. It's like, that's where I'm living. I'm living in the before that you won't share with me. Almost like it's kind of culture to not invite somebody to your house if it's filthy, right? You're not going to invite somebody to your dirty house. And I get that. But kind of push back with this, right? You'll never invite someone to your house unless it's absolutely pristine. But then that's, a, that's tons of missed opportunities for relationship. That's tons of missed opportunities to practice and share hospitality. I think it's better to clean up the best you can, invite someone over, serve and love them the best way you can. And then when they come back, they'll see that it's a little cleaner than it was before. And they come back, it's a little cleaner than it was. And now they're seeing this process of, you, of cleaning up and, and getting as close to God as you can instead of expecting themselves to just automatically be a museum, which is unrealistic. Nobody is as clean as they, they try to be on Sunday. We do it right to, because we don't people in our business, right? And I get that to some degree. But just as much as we are saying that people are just close enough, we're also saying that they're just far away enough. Um, and I got saved at a desk at Washington Preparatory High School. Um, the challenge in that is going back to church the next Sunday hmm. with this real passion and fire and, and zeal and seeing folks, and at least in my teenage mind, pretend to have it or, or, or get it to a place where it's big enough and then be okay and not want to grow it anymore. And that was frustrating. <laughs> But there's a passion and a zeal and a love and a fervor yeah. that new believers have that will shake the rust off of someone who's been saved for 15, 20 years. Um, it'll make you see the gospel brand new again. You get around somebody who just got saved, 
it'll either push you closer to God or you'll be super irritated. Uh, <laughs> and that was me, man. I was Bible under my arm, showing up Sunday school. I was, I was just passionate, man. And um, it just wasn't reciprocated. I put it that way. So when, when I kind of found art um, and talked with friends and coworkers, I said, man, I'm not the only one who has a similar experience like this. I'm not the only one who feels this way. Um, I'll use my art uh, to speak to those that that feel jaded, that feel scarred, that feel um, abandoned on, by these traditions and these um, way we want to be seen that have kind of left other people behind. Now, I want to be respectful to seasoned saints and to those who came before us. Those traditions were a lifesaver, right? Like they were drowning and all the things going on in their life and this consistent, beautiful thing was thrown out to them from some church as a tradition, and it saved them. There is so much power in in some of the the the, the way we do things and the sacraments that were that were held onto by the church. So this is not you know young versus the old church. I think there's so much truth and power, and I think it's the easiest way to say it is like the old church has songs that have been, they've been singing for 500 years. We don't have songs we sing for more than five months. <laughs> you know, so there had there's some the ability to sustain and stay around is powerful. However, my loving critique is that some of those same uh, lifesavers that saved them those more seasoned older saints is becoming a noose to a lot of the younger young adult passionate Christians who feel caged, who feel trapped by the how much we adore some of our traditions hmm. um, just, uh, and how we turn preference into scripture um, and, they, and they are not the same. Right. Oh, that's really good. That's powerful. What are the sorts of things that you would say to a church leader? If you had an opportunity to sit down and say a, a leader who's kind of stuck in their ways, what would you, what would be on your heart to say to them? And then what would you say to the, 17-year-old Alexander James who's meeting Jesus but not sure that they love the church? To the church leader, uh, I would probably just take a line from the poem and say, because um, I don't think it's about arguing method as much as folks like to think. Um, I really think the question is, does your network, right? Like, is it effective? Is what you're doing to reach out to the youth and young adults, is it working? Um, I think that churches would serve themselves much better if we standardize having debriefing meetings after service, after events. The willingness to sit around and say, this was our attendance goal. Did we hit our attendance goal? Yes or no? Why or why not? Did we hit our soul goal? How many people did we want to be saved this event? Did we hit the goal? Why or why not? How do we advertise? That work. Why or why not? And be able to slow down. Um, I think that you can either hit the the, ham- the, the nail a hundred times with a shoe or three times with a hammer. Hmm. And I think slow down, we can hammer instead of just trying to shoe in nails. But I, w- I would ask that person to just simply first ask themselves, is it working? And if it's not working, why is it not working? And then figure out what's working and do that. 
And then also, I, mean, I guess what I needed more than anything was to know that my struggles with lying and girls and pornography and sex were not, didn't start with me. It would, it would have been nice to hear a leader say, hey, I struggled with that too. Um, and this is some of the mistakes that I made. Um, and, and I don't want you to make those same mistakes. So let me be real and honest with you about some of my own scars. Um, I think a lot of folks feel very trapped on an island with their problems because of folks' unwillingness to share that they have the same limp, but they just, you know, play it off. And the last thing would have to be, who I'm going to get myself in trouble, but I, but I got to tell the truth. So, because this is how kids feel. At my church, man, when I was raised, I felt like hands and feet. What I mean by that is go pick this up, go clean this up, take this here, do this, stand here, do that, be this person, take this across the street, go sweep the dirt parking lot. They may be sweet dirt, right? So I, <laughs> I don't know if it's going that far for anybody else, but being a youth often you just feel like a gopher. Go do this, wear this, dress this way, sing this song as if you don't have voice, as if you don't have opinion, as if you don't have skill, you don't have talent, you are hands and feet. Um, and I would challenge our church leaders to, to, to create a standard um, where the youth can share their opinion, to share their voice within reason, within biblical context, with guided by love and patience and, and mentoring. Um, but to use their position at the church and their history on earth as, as pulpit for their youth to speak from, not as a stifle for the youth to be stifled under. Um, because I've been on earth longer than you, my voice matters more. Like, just because you're born first, like, like what if J Jesus could literally have made it the other way around? Like, I don't believe that the... I'm not saying you don't deserve respect, but just because you've been around a longer time um, does not mean that you don't owe the same type of love and respect that Christ gave you to youth. And you'd be surprised what they have to say if you let them share. I was, uh, I said it to, to, to talk about myself. I was arguing with my pastor about, I was passionately debating, let me say that, with my pastor. <laughs> about something about youth service, but it was frivolous looking back on it. It was something that just wasn't a big deal. Um, and that same week, um, one of my youth attempted to commit suicide. Hmm. And I thought about it, all the signs were there, but I was so drenched in the day-to-day the -day mundane, you know, this is what we got to do for service, let's get this done, you know, dot all the ice cards on the teeth, that I didn't put all this, the pieces together and could have been more of a help, I believe, more of a more of a saving grace, more of a support, because I was so busy doing church stuff instead of just being church. Hmm. Uh, and I say that to say that you'd be amazed how much love your youth need, and you'd be amazed how much they feel loved just by you being there hmm. uh, and just doing life with them instead of doing events at them. Wow. Um, and, and then to the younger leader, what do you say to them or the younger person yeah, getting involved yeah, in the church? The, the 7, 15, 16-year-old man, I would say you'll never have a good picture of your church until you get a really good picture of Jesus. Hmm. Um, 
you don't form an opinion, a strong opinion about what you think the church is and is not until you have a great, you feel like you have a great grasp of the gospel and of Jesus. Because I don't believe that from a youth perspective, you can really see the church for what it's called to be without seeing Jesus for who he is and what he said it's supposed to be. Hmm. Um, like I said earlier, until I began to see the church as the bride of Christ, as the presence of a living God on a dying world, as the salt, as light, as power, um, that I was able to take the stance I've been able to take with my critiques um, um, and helping her get dressed for the very worthy husbandman. Um, so yeah, I would say, you know, I, would, I wouldn't have three for the youth. I would just say, get a really good picture of Jesus and that'll help you see the church the way you should see it. Yeah, that's that's so wise. I love that response. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and Alexander, this has been just incredible. I feel like I could just keep talking to you about your perspective on the church, on the world. I, I love your heart. I, I, I love just the way that you share your wisdom and your insight and your story and your vulnerability and all that. And I could keep going on, man. I, I just want to say thank you again to you, Alexander, for taking the time, sharing your heart and your wisdom. Well, man, I want to, I want to appreciate you, man, you and your beautiful ministry and family, man. I'm excited. Um, just to see you building our relationship together. We met up at, at camp and I met a lot of people but you're one of the folks whose names I remember. Um, so I just want to appreciate you and your heart, um, how you're serving the church, man, how you're, how you're lovingly leading. I will say this. I kind of said, it was my first camp when, we, when I met Tim. And uh, they had like this meeting with all the counselors um, that him and his wife led prior to camp really kicking off. And these folks led, man, with such passion and humility um, and kindness, but also a very clear excellence and a very clear strategy for what the goal was. Um, and I think that too often church leaders are either super bubbly and loving, but no strategy and no plan, or they have a plan, but they're very stringent and strict and they don't leave space for the Holy spirit or for like this human interaction and kindness. And him and his wife was this beautiful blend. I don't know if they balance each other out in whatever way, but, this beautiful blend of passion and planning of kindness, but also um, having a strategy for what the plan was. And, and that really stuck out to me. I was like, these people care about the people and they're making sure that we dot the I's and cross the T's. Um, and I appreciate uh, just effective ministry. Um, and that was an awesome night. That was an awesome weekend. I think it was uh, the, the, the harvest of souls at the end of it was evident of the passion mm -hmm. and the that went into it. So I'm just honored to be connected to you all. Man, I'm going to go ahead and not edit all of that out of the podcast, just because I know who you were really talking about was my wife. Uh, so I know that she is the reason anything I do ever works. So uh, I'm going to make sure that she hears every word of what you just said. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for sharing your heart in that. Um, we're, we're honored. And yeah, it was a great, a great gift to get to meet you and to just get to connect and to get to continue to do it here. And, uh, really, really appreciate it. Looking forward to hearing more. Awesome, man. Appreciate you. God bless.
I hope you enjoyed my interview with Alexander James and season one of Leader Life. It's been a pleasure to share these episodes with you in this inaugural season of the show. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. It means a lot to me that you'd spend any of your time here. For those of you that have sent messages or told me in person that you're listening, a very special thank you to you. Your kindness has kept me going on this project. Leader Life is definitely a project that I love, and I will be back in the fall with more great interviews and hopefully some fresh ideas to encourage, entertain, and challenge you in your life as a leader. For now, I'll leave you with one final thought from Alexander James, a line from one of the short poems in his new book. Enjoy, have a great summer, and we'll talk later. Prayers hurled from hearts that harbor hate will never boomerang.